giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast, where we explore the design, development, and business of great products. I'm your host, Chad Pytel, and with me today is Joe Ferris, CTO of ThoughtBot. Joe, thanks for joining me again. Good to be back. It's been a while. It has, uh, like maybe years. <laughs> so uh, what have you been working on? Well, I have been doing a bunch of what I'm calling data engineering. Is anyone else calling it that or just you calling it? Well, other people call some of the same things data engineering, I think. Okay. <laughs> and so what is data engineering? That's a good question. Like most things in computers, it's pretty fluffy. I remember when I first got into web development and told people I was a web developer, they would say, so you make things with HTML? And I couldn't really disagree with that. Like maybe a web developer makes things with HTML, but I think mm -hmm. it's similar to that where it encompasses a wide variety of things. But it's more in the data, like backend direction than it is in the user facing UI focused direction. Mm -hmm. And is it data science? Ah, data engineering and data science are related, but slightly different. So data scientists work with data and theoretically they know more than I do about math so that they can figure out what you can actually learn from data and come up with interesting pictures of the data. Whereas data engineers are more focused on the nuts and bolts of getting all the data from wherever it comes from into your data warehouse so people can perform analysis on it. And so is it machine learning? Good question. Again, those are uh, worlds that interact. So mm -hmm. machine learning for almost any interesting problem that you could use it for would require a good amount of data because it's essentially doing math at some level. So if you only have four or five data points, you won't be able to learn much from them. So any problem you could solve with machine learning will also require enough data to learn. And so those two disciplines interact a lot. Mm -hmm. Another thing is that in situations where you have a lot of data, it can be cumbersome to write the algorithms and determine what a good process would be for analyzing the data. And that iteration can be very slow end to end, like reanalyzing a large batch of data. So incremental learning algorithms can be much more efficient than what a human could do by hand. And you need data engineering in order to build those. You do, yes. So how did you, I assume you were working on a web development project. <laughs> and said, oh, what I have here is a data engineering problem. Where was the line, or how was your journey through that? I think my journey was like a lot of Rails developers where you get mock-ups for something, you start building out a product, and then slowly you realize that almost all of your time is spent either in SQL or in background jobs. Like people start to move things more and more out of the request response cycle and into something like delayed job or rescue or sidekick. Then instead of having these little background things that don't really matter, like sending out an email or just bulk updating uh, file sizes for attachments, you have this complex pipeline of things. It's like, okay, when somebody signs up, we have to pull data from this source. And then once we get it from there, we use data from there to get it from three other sources and then combine it. And so you have this like a dependency graph in your background jobs. And those systems are really not designed to handle that. And Ruby is maybe not that interested in being conservative with memory, for example. And so you start to like look at the problem in front of you and think like, am I, am I a web developer anymore? Like if I cross into some bizarre universe where I don't speak the language? Mm -hmm. And I think the answer is yes. <laughs> 
that a lot of the tools that we use and the approaches we use for building uh, like forms and um, quick response cycles and snappy UIs with tight integration are not the same things you'd use for data heavy projects. Mm -hmm. So like at least I tend to think starting from the user interface. And so even a project that I'm guessing like a data scientist would look at and immediately be like, this is an analytics project. I look at it like a user facing problem. I think about like the buttons and how you'll navigate and how I will serve that user interface. But there are a lot of projects out there where the user interface will only have one or two screens that are showing you like graphs that could be increasingly complex in their sources, but the user interface is simple. Mm -hmm. So I would call those data engineering projects. Mm -hmm. Am I right in saying that our first real exposure to this in terms of there is actual work we're doing and we say, oh, okay, we see what the problem It's almost always been someone who has an existing system and it's probably built in Ruby and it's working like the way that you described with a bunch of background jobs and trying to process large amounts of incoming data and realizing that the old way or the, the traditional way of handling that is falling over. I think that's been my uh, most common experience. Mm -hmm. I've also, it's easy to do it incrementally yourself mm -hmm. to see a problem and think I'll just use the same approach I always do. Right. And slowly get yourself into a fix where it, you know, doing the daily batch job takes more than a day. How do you approach that problem when you find that you have it? That is difficult. My experience so far has been that there is an unfortunate lack of overlap in the tools. So for building a UI focused web application, Rails has been really effective. I don't think there's anything specific about Ruby, the language or the ecosystem that does that particularly well. I think it's Rails. Mm -hmm. And in other communities I've worked in, I haven't seen anything that is as tightly integrated as Rails with things like building the assets and making sure that your links are lined up nicely. Like there's just a lot more boilerplate and a lot that hasn't been done for you that you have to invent in every other ecosystem I've worked in. But conversely, it doesn't seem like authors of Ruby toolkits, including myself as a Ruby developer, mm -hmm. generally think in terms of data size and scale. So the primary approach is to get a bunch of data at once and put it all in memory. So if you look at JSON parsing libraries in Ruby, for example, they will all build things into a in-memory Ruby structure mm -hmm. as their primary approach. Mm -hmm. like give me a giant Ruby hash, which is fine if you don't have a lot of data, but if you are gonna be sifting through gigabytes of data regularly, then that's just not okay as a starting approach. So for projects where we realize we're deep in the hole, we've been using Scala, mm -hmm. which has a number of advantages. Like the ecosystem is pretty good there if you need to go deep like Spark. The JVM, which I know the J words tend to be sort of dirty words in the Ruby community, but it does a really good job of garbage collecting tons of small objects compared to Ruby. Mm -hmm. Could you use JRuby? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I haven't tried JRuby specifically. So in terms of memory characteristics, JRuby might be better. Mm -hmm. All of my experiences trying to run Ruby tools on the JVM have been sort of like the uncanny valley where like it mostly works, but there's always a thing in, your, in the back of your mind when something is weird where it's like, is that because I'm using JRuby? Mm -hmm. And then you wouldn't get a lot of the benefits. So while the JVM would be better in terms of memory characteristics, the libraries in Ruby would be the same. Mm 
Mm-hmm. So if you do things like... Or you'd have to rely on Java or... Right, exactly. Yeah. And once you start to make that bridge, I think it's probably worthwhile to use something like Scala that has a better Java interop story. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to take it for granted that people know what Scala is. So what is Scala? That's fair. Scala is a language that it now targets a number of platforms, but the primary target is the JVM. It is a functional object-oriented hybrid, sort of like Ruby, but uh, a little bit more seriously on the functional side. Mm -hmm. And it has a pretty advanced type system, which can be really nice if you're writing code for long-running processes where the feedback cycle is really frustrating. So like writing a functional test for a data pipeline, for example, is pretty hard without taking a lot of time. Whereas using a type system that will check through at least didn't do something knuckleheaded, like you're not going to get a null pointer exception, mm-hmm. that can be really nice. Whereas the approach in Ruby, like people use TDD when they can, but at the end of the day, making sure your thing works is hitting refresh in a browser, which is not okay if you have a pipeline that's going to take an hour or two to run. So when we have a problem like this, like I'm working on something now that which is syncing data from an external system, it's not an immense amount of data. Memory is not the issue. Processing time isn't the issue. It's plenty fast. But would you by default now just look at Scala and building a pipeline using that tool set? If I were building a system that was primarily moving data around, now that Mm -hmm. I'm comfortable with it, that would be my Mm go-to because I think the tooling is better. But it's a difficult choice. And it's one of those things that it can be difficult for a development team that is focused on a particular technology because, for example, you're a Ruby developer. And so Mm -hmm. if you see a problem like that, if it was crazy big data and you knew you just couldn't do it using your usual tool set, you'd be forced to do something else. But most things fall into the category I've been calling awkward data, mm-hmm. which is when it's enough data that you have to think about it. Like you have to be really careful with your indexes in SQL and not do anything stupid. But it's not enough that you need something like Hadoop and you need to start talking to people about Cassandra or HBase. So in the moment, it is always going to be easier for you to use the toolkit you're comfortable with, mm-hmm. which is a challenge. So how do you overcome that? Well, I just forced myself to learn another toolkit that I Mm -hmm. thought would be good for data. And it's hard to make that choice because there are a number of different things that could be important. Like another choice I could have made was, well, I'm going to invest in React Native personally Mm -hmm. and learn about mobile because a lot of projects, when you go to them, it's hard to know if it should be web first or mobile first. And because I'm strong in web, I have that same challenge where I'm going to do a better job of the web app, so that's what I'm going to build. Mm -hmm. But I was increasingly seeing these, like I kept facing that same situation where it was like, I would like to extract some kind of a data pipeline for this because I know that would be responsible, but that's not where my expertise is. So I know that I can solve this problem faster for you using Ruby, even though I don't think that's the ideal solution. Right. So I forced myself to learn something else. The problems I'm dealing with now are not, like I said, they're not memory or processing time, they're errors. So we have this data coming in from an external service, and it's like, oh, well, we're getting an exception now. Why is that? And it's almost always because of something was nil and we didn't expect it. But um, we don't control that external API that's sending us the data. It's like, oh, I guess that's a possibility, like to not have this attribute that we thought was a required attribute. Does just using Scala help with those problems? I think using Scala would help with those problems on its own. 
One thing about Ruby is the community is pretty obsessed with nil and with allowing things to fail, which works well when you're exploring the possibilities. So in a user-driven app where you can investigate by hand most of the possible cases and it won't, for example, happen overnight very often in the early stages, it's easy to discover all those nils that you didn't think of, like, oh, somebody didn't fill this in, or I forgot to make this column not null in the database. But when it's coming from an external API and they can change things on their own, and when you have to map out all the cases by hand and know about them, a complete lack of a type system is pretty frustrating because you have to think of everything. Right. And there are inevitably things you didn't think of because you didn't know that they were possible. Right. And sometimes with an API, it's even that they weren't possible. Yeah. And they become and they possible. Right, right. Um, like I've done a decent amount of work with the Slack API and it's not versioned and they change it. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it's not just that I didn't think of it, it's that they change it from under you. Mm -hmm. And so Scala with a type system would force you to think about more of those things because you'd get errors at compile time that were like, you didn't check to see if that was there. Mm -hmm. But you also have to make some assumptions because you have to decide what you're going to do. So handling every possible case of a field being null, for example, doesn't make sense because in some places when you're pulling in data, it's like, if it doesn't have that, I can't use it. Mm -hmm. So I have to decide how to escalate that. You at least have to think through some of the choices when you're using Scala. But I think systems that have schemas are much better. And that's where you start to get a lot of advantage from type systems because a schema can fairly directly map to types in a host language. And then it can actually tell you about all the possibilities that exist in the schema and not right. just the theoretical ones. Mm -hmm. So at least internally, when we've been building APIs, we've been using GraphQL more and more lately, which has a number of advantages over like an ad hoc REST schema. But one of them is a schema that maps really well into languages like Scala and TypeScript. Yeah, I mean, my problem is relatively specific, but at the same time, I think it's a general problem. Like, so this is just I'm receiving webhooks from an external service every time some, anything happens with the data in that external service and I got to handle it and then take action on it. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what the external service is written in, but they provide a Ruby library wrapper for it. And that's what I'm using. And the Ruby wrapper that they give has objects that are, you know, mapping their JSON that's coming in from the webhook. So like so much has been provided to me from the Ruby ecosystem and from the actual company that's publishing that service that we're using they don't have a scala library for the api so i would need to write that which would be good because it would force me to identify like create types for everything mm -hmm. but it would be a lot more work it's right. hard to overcome that inertia i think a situation like that is common in development and it's really like I think one way to think about it is um, pre-tax or post-tax mm -hmm. when you're deciding how to figure something out. So if you think you're going to do it once and it's quick, like I just want to know how many GitHub repositories I have, if there's a library available in almost any language, it's probably faster to just use it and have it kind of crash its way through until you get the number you want. Mm -hmm. But if you know you want to heavily invest in an ecosystem, like you keep using the same service over and over again and having this problem, it makes a lot of sense to invest more heavily in it. And I think that is actually a, a difference between languages like Ruby and JavaScript versus like Scala and TypeScript is what I would say is feels fast versus is sustainable in the long run. Mm -hmm. Like 
Ruby and JavaScript feel really fast because you type stuff in an editor, reload the page, and you immediately see something. Like there's no dialogue before you get to start moving forward. And even if there are a lot of things you haven't talked about yet, you can figure them out later. Mm -hmm. And that's good for prototypes or for situations where you don't plan on heavily investing. But in the long run, that actually, although it feels fast, ends up being slower because you keep adding all this debt that you don't even know about. Mm -hmm. And that's where you see like Rails projects, their velocity tanks over right. time. Because So at this point, about once a week, we discover, oh, the queue is no longer being processed. And we have to look at the exception and see, oh, there's a new nil that we didn't know about. And we got to add a check for it or deal with it. But the process of debugging that means we're not working on something else. Right. And the queue was broken the whole time. So then it has to go through and redo all the updates once we fix the problem. I do think that types could help there potentially because they're just good in general at discovering possible bugs. But I also think that's a place where the approach that web developers take, which is it's you know language tooling, but also mindset mm -hmm. is what starts to hurt you. Because you when you think in terms of UI focused projects, you think about being able to quickly find problems because you can replicate them immediately. There's no long cycle. Right. And this is a good example of where that doesn't work. Like a weekly cycle is really long for debugging something. Mm -hmm. And so people who work regularly on batch long pipelines and weekly cycles think a lot about what they're going to do when it doesn't work. Whereas somebody who works in terms of a UI thinks like, I'm going to get the email and I'm going to look at it and fix mm -hmm. it because it will happen constantly. So for example, one mindset shift might be, and correct me if I'm wrong here, like what happens now is I get the webhook and I process it. But in a world where I'm concerned about it continually breaking, like the processing breaking because of unknown nils and that kind of thing, I might change my approach and instead I get the webhook, take whatever data is given to me and put it somewhere and then process that separately so that I can reprocess things should there ever be a problem mm -hmm. and don't get rid of the data that has been stored until it's successfully processed. Is that the kind of mindset shift you would make? Yeah, that's definitely, that, that would help. I think separating things into stages and mm -hmm. having a distinct phase for taking exactly what they give you and storing it versus starting to do things from it is helpful. In general, with data, I think being able to resume is really helpful. And mm -hmm. the, the easiest way to do that is to have those separate stages and then have each of them be item potent, which sometimes is easy and worth it and sometimes can be really hard. But mm -hmm. in a case like this, if you are importing data that has any kind of unique identifier, you, you can probably do that. Right. And so like accepting a webhook, you can key by day. Accepting data from the webhook, you could key, key by like... URL or email, and then basically when you get that error, you can just keep telling it to resume after you mm -hmm. update the code. It's funny because the, the webhooks themselves do resume. So if we give an error, we don't acknowledge the webhook with a successful response, they'll keep sending it. Mm -hmm. And then we keep on failing You know, for each time that they send that. So because it has that automatic resume, I think you would normally think, well, we've got this covered. Like if we can't process it, it's going to be resigned over and over again. But it's actually really frustrating to have the whole thing be broken for multiple things when something changes with the data that we expect. Right. I, I think those and to retries... be reliant on the external service to be the ones resending it to us. Right. I think that would be useful if, like, you know, your data center happened to be unreachable at the time it sent the webhook. Mm -hmm. 
But I think for retrying logic after you fix a bug, it's less convenient. Like I think a lot in terms of the difficulty and length of a development cycle. So one of the things that really drove me to do TDD in Ruby was not some theoretical correctness or purity. It was the fact that I would immediately get feedback as mm -hmm. I was developing versus hitting reload in a web browser. Like right. you can write a lot of code before you actually find out you went in the wrong direction. And I like that about type systems too. And I, I've also taken that to sort of an operations level. Like debugging something on CI is incredibly frustrating compared to locally. Debugging something in Docker is honestly still frustrating, but less frustrating than deploying to a machine and watching mm -hmm. it fail. And I think in terms of data pipelines, separating them into those stages that you can control and replicate isolated gives you the same sort of tighter feedback yeah. loop versus waiting for a webhook. That's again. actually perfect because there was because it's a webhook and it's sending the data to a production server and it was failing, there was no way for me to say, well, what data is it failing with? Because I don't have that data. Right. <laughs> so the fastest way to figure out what it was failing with was to add a debugging statement to the controller that's receiving it and then deploy that to production so I could get the data that production was being sent. Otherwise, I would need to point their service at my development computer to be able to see that latest data that's coming in. Whereas if it was a separate stage, I would have that data available and I'd be able to grab it from production, bring it locally, and rerun the process on it to see where it fails. Yeah, I think that's another good example of a mindset shift that happens moving mm -hmm. away from web development. And I, I actually think this is true in mobile development too. Anything where there's a long cycle where you don't have the ability to really quickly retest, you log a lot mm -hmm. because you need to know what happened in order to fix it and it's not going to be easy to reproduce. Cool. So you mentioned the the other problem of background job dependencies where you say, okay, we're going to get this data in, then we need to process it by asking this external service. And then once we have that, we then need to fire these other background jobs that use that to get more information and to do other processing. With the new tool set and the new mindset that we have, how does that actually end up looking? So I end up working a lot in terms of streams. Like mm -hmm. the more I can change things into a streaming problem, the easier I find it to work with. So something, if you stop thinking in terms of jobs and you think in terms of like events and unfolding data into new streams, mm -hmm. you can, and this is sort of hard to talk about abstractly, Yeah. but you can build things in terms of a data stream that can be decoupled in a number of different ways. In a lot of Scala streaming libraries, you can decouple things in terms of multiple threads, or you could, for example, connect different ends of the pipe to Kafka queues so they actually get spilled to disk and can be pulled asynchronously by distributed platforms. You could also go all the way into something like Spark, which if you're thinking in terms of jobs doesn't make a lot of sense, but if you do have actual data streams you're joining, can do a really good job of crunching massive data. So in terms of how it actually looks, it, it might not be that different than a bunch of jobs that go out, but you're doing it in a way that is, is that is that right? It might not be diff that much different than a bunch of sort of isolated classes that do a certain function. That's definitely true. I think it's like most things in development where it's very abstract and what maybe is a massive paradigm shift is just like, slowly rotating a few things like mm -hmm. slightly changing the shape of the problem massively changes how you work with it and how it performs like one good example of something that is well understood and talked about a lot in streaming environments is back pressure 
which is something you don't see in web applications, which mm -hmm. is the ability for each piece of the pipeline to say like, I can't actually take any more input right now. And so it will halt, which sounds really bad because if you think about like dropping web requests, it is bad, right? right. But at the end of the day, when you're processing data, if you can't keep up with the volume, it's arguably better to tell something to wait or just have a system in place that starts skipping or sampling than it is to just get stuck. Mm -hmm. Because what happens with Rails applications with background jobs is that everybody gets in that situation at some point where you have like 40,000 things in the queue and you have no hope of working through them. Mm -hmm. And so you just declare queue bankruptcy and don't really know what happened. Mm -hmm. Whereas in a back pressure system, you at least know that everything that entered the queue will get processed. And that allows you to figure out where your bottlenecks are and to start building them out into different, like on Heroku, they could be different dynos or you can reprioritize different nodes or. Mm -hmm. In terms of deployment and infrastructure and all that stuff, like what's the same, what's different than what we might be used to in normal web development? Some things are pretty similar. Like the JVM is certainly a very well understood mm -hmm. piece of software and deploying that systems like Heroku and Docker is not particularly hard. One complaint you hear from a lot of people is that the JVM requires a lot of memory uh, as a baseline, but I haven't actually found that to be true. If you're working with like smaller data problems and you give it the right VM arguments, it seems to be fine running in like half a gig of memory like a Rails app would. Mm -hmm. And so for a lot of things, I've just been deploying to Heroku, which has built-in support for a lot of Java platforms and Scala things like SBT. And so the routine hasn't been very different. For other platforms that run on systems like Hadoop, so mm -hmm. I'm thinking Spark, Flink, it's pretty different. One thing that Heroku doesn't let you do very easily is have a lot of different nodes talk to each other, which is necessary for distributed platforms. So if you think about the way the typical Heroku dyno works, it's like you have a bunch of dynos, like web dynos, that are all the same. They have a port open, and they're waiting for something to push something to them. Mm -hmm. Whereas in a cluster, something needs to be in charge of the nodes and distributing work and talking to them. And there isn't a really straightforward way to do that on Heroku. Mm -hmm. So something like Spark or Flink, once you get into big data or like massive real-time streaming, you'd have to shift to something like AWS. But early on, it's pretty similar. So when you have a system where like, okay, we've built or we are building a web UI in Rails... But we have like the system I'm working on where I have a lot of incoming data and I'm processing it. And maybe I want to make that in Scala, but I have a web UI that's a normal Rails app. How would you break that down and how would you get the data to live or accessible to the Rails app eventually? So in this, in this case, say we have an external system and it is sending events to you know, right now it's sending them to our Rails app, which is processing those events and putting them in the database. And then you have a UI for viewing that information. So um, I've tried a few different approaches mm -hmm. and all of them are easier if you start out knowing more than you realistically do. Mm -hmm. Like if you were starting this project from day one, you might start with a Rails UI, but then with a backend service that provides an API. Actually, let me, would you maybe even not start with a Rails UI? Well, that's one of the approaches that I've tried. Mm -hmm. And I had said earlier that Rails, in my opinion, is unique in terms of how well it integrates with tools to make web UIs. Uh -huh. And so on a couple projects, I've tried building out the web UI in Scala. 
just to keep it to one platform, make it so you don't have like there's a, definitely a headache in having an API layer and having mm-hmm. multiple projects to deploy and syncing them, right? So I tried just building out the web UI in Scala, and there are tools for that, like Scala Play, and there are some nice things like HTTP for us that are more in the typed functional direction, but they're just not the same as Rails. You keep running into things that don't exist or that are clunkier, like form validation or building assets. And so I think for a project with a minimal web UI, that can actually be viable because you do find yourself like stumbling around in the web components, but it doesn't matter because they're mm. small. But for something that you were going to build out a lot of UI for, I think the best approach is probably to split it okay. and have a front-end platform and a back-end platform. Okay, so then assuming you've settled on that approach, how do you get data from one to the other? That's definitely the challenge. So a lot of people talk about microservices, and that feels really good as a concept. Like in the problem you're talking about, you could say, we're just going to make a service, which sounds like it's one of those words that just feels good, like feather. Like we're just going to release it. It's, it's so liberating. But the truth is that whatever service you're working with is going to need some of the data from your main application. Mm-hmm. And so you end up in this situation where it's like, okay, do I also send that data over? How big is that going to get to be? Like how many times am I going to write serialization for these two models? Or do you start moving the data over? And so I, I think the ideal approach at this point is to have all the data live in one place and have one API in something like GraphQL. And then the Rails app, really doesn't need a database. Like the API is the database. Mm-hmm. And for something that has a lot of data, that that can be good. For something that's just doing CRUD operations on a database, Rails is really good at that. But once you start to get into more complex queries, and if you have to do anything besides what you would do in SQL, the tooling doesn't really exist there anymore. So if nothing else, the advantage disappears. Mm-hmm. And so at that point, I would say something that's good at it would be better. Okay, so data comes into the Rails app in that standpoint? I would say no. I would say the Rails app doesn't ever handle the input at all. Okay, so the Scala app is receiving, in the case of the example I've been using, is receiving the webhooks. That's right. And it's maybe immediately storing them and then queuing them and then processing them. Right. And then after it does the processing and cleans the data and does all that stuff, how does it get to the Rails app? You can have an API using Mm -hmm. something like GraphQL that the Rails app asks for data using. Oh, so the Rails app would ask for data rather than having the data pushed to the Rails app, probably. And why would you do that? If you push the data, that implies that you're storing it somewhere. Mm -hmm. And storing data in more than one place in the same form is effectively a cache. And that leads you to one of the hardest problems in computer science, which is cache (laughs) invalidation. Okay. So, you know, it is being stored in the Scala app. That's the pipeline. But the Rails app is pulling it, and so it can be removed as soon as the Rails app says, yes, I've got this. I don't think it has to be removed. Oh, okay. Because if you, assumedly you're asking for some definitive set of data, like whatever you're pulling, like a list of sites or something, Mm. the list of sites can be continually updated by the data pipeline in Scala. And whenever Rails asks for it, it gives you whichever one makes sense. Right, and if that Scala service needed information that is in the main Rails app, you mentioned, you know, that's obviously a pain point because you have interdependencies between the two. But then generally speaking, you would just expose APIs and the Scala service would ask the Rails app for what it needed. My approach would be as much as possible, you move all the data to one place. Move all the data to one place. But this is what I was saying, where if you had more information in the beginning and you could do that, that'd be great. But realistically, you have a Rails app with data in it. 
and moving right. it all over right now would right. be ridiculous, right. right? So, for example, one of the components or one of the things that's happening is when this data comes in, when the event comes in, there are certain people who should be notified about that event. And so the Rails app right now knows, okay, these people, when, when it's this kind of event happening in this way, notify these people in Slack mm -hmm. about that problem. There's a CRUD interface for editing the list of people who should be notified mm -hmm. about any specific error. Like in an ideal world, you'd have that interface in the Scala app. I don't think you'd have the interface in the Scala app, but you'd have the data there. Mm -hmm. So it's part of the GraphQL API. You can yep. have the form of So the Rails the app would be an interface to editing that right. via an API. Right. You can extract services the same way you would think of extracting classes within an application. You can pull out the smallest part that is independent and then start slowly pulling the threads until you find things that yeah. can be moved discreetly. Right. I'm trying to speak in generalities, but like, you know, the system I'm talking about and <laughs> everything is dependent on a set of locations. Like, so the people exist in an office. And so the list of offices is also a central data thing that everything, all the actions, everything we might scope anything by any list of people, it's all determined by, oh, this event happened in this location. So the list of people I might notify about it is based on that location. So even w when we've tried to say, we just need to know the list of people, we then also need to know the list of like what the locations are. Right, and that is just a really hard problem mm -hmm. because doing it gradually means inevitably you end up storing some data in two places because you could say like, okay, well, if that's the root of the data, the authority is going to be the service. And so we're moving that data over there. But then you get to places in Rails where it's like, okay, find all the people and eager load their locations. Right. <laughs> and you're like, oh, like that was really convenient before. And that's also really easy with things like GraphQL once all the data is there. But when you have the data in two places, like joining it discreetly between two systems that are completely different is really hard. And so I think when you go to extract a service, you have to make a calculation to figure out if it's worthwhile. Like if you find yourself in an application even if it's pretty far advanced, we are like, oh, 99% of this is doing data. Like I've ended up in a weird place. Then maybe it's worth it to start investing. But if it's like a 50-50 split and you're already strongly on one side of the fence, then you can be like, this is not going to be worth it. Mm -hmm. Because having the data in two places means you inevitably have disagreement about that data. Right. And that's a really hard problem. Like that's just an unsolved problem, like mm -hmm. maybe unsolvable problem. So like, if you decide to extract services and move it into a service layer, then inevitably you have a middle world while you're doing that where things are undeniably worse. Like you might fix some of the problems you're having, but you'll introduce worse problems. Mm -hmm. And hopefully there is a light at the end of the tunnel, but also maybe not. And in the meantime, it's gonna be pretty bad. Yeah. I guess you just work through that and it's a big project. <laughs> right. And sometimes it's not worth it. It's like rewriting something. Like if you realize you've done yeah. a really bad job of it, sometimes it's still not worth it to rewrite it. Like you mm -hmm. can refactor as much as you can knowing it'll never be as beautiful as if you had known something else in the beginning. But the truth is that rewriting it would be so expensive or so uh, unreliable that it might not be worth it. And the same can be true of moving to a different situation like extracting a major service layer. If you honestly look at the undertaking and go like, there's no way I will ever get back what I put into this, then mm. 
it doesn't make sense to start. But that being said, I do think it is also easy to overestimate how hard that will be compared to the pain of continually using the wrong tool for a difficult job. Yeah. Are there any other tools that you found are useful in this realm um, that you haven't mentioned yet? I don't think so. I mean, it's, it's like a big world, data engineering in general and big data. And they're really like several worlds that all kind of intersect. So even just going into a a quick overview of like what is the data world like would be pretty expansive mm-hmm. but i think starting to look at the sort of java scala apache constellation of tools and starting to learn about the many communities that exist there can be for somebody who finds themselves continually confronting data problems that can be a good place to explore and do you think that it's it's worthwhile to sort of say i'm just going to explore and and learn or do you think it's better to say I have this specific pain and how would I solve it? Hmm. Well, I, I had a pretty specific problem in front of me that had already been solved in Ruby. And it was similar to what you're talking about where we were confronted with extracting a data pipeline. And so we basically had to rewrite what we had done because the approach was not scalable in the database. Mm-hmm. And so like, even if we were going to do it in Ruby, continue it in Ruby, we would have had to rewrite it. Yep. So we decided while we were rewriting it and having you know like Heroku out of memory errors every day, several times, that we would try using a different platform. And so I don't remember what Google binge I went on, but I was looking for better data processing and kept finding people talking about things in Scala and Python. And Scala seems to be heavily weighted towards the data side of things, particularly big data. Mm-hmm. And then Python is more weighted towards machine learning. Mm-hmm. and while machine learning is definitely interesting, it wasn't immediately the problem I had in front of me. So I fell down on the Scala side mm-hmm. and uh, it built up a prototype. Like I spiked it out over the course of a day on two different tools in Scala, which were uh, Spark and Flink. Mm-hmm. And it ended up being drastically simpler than what we were doing. Mm-hmm. So we decided to continue down that path. Mm-hmm. And which one did you end up going with? <laughs> Neither. Neither? <laughs> uh, we ended up building something using Aka Streams okay. um, because it was a lot easier to deploy and manage. Okay. But uh, one of the nice things is the abstractions are really similar as long as you're not doing anything really crazy in all these streaming things. It's sort of like within SQL databases, there are things you have to know, but the approach is the same. Mm-hmm. And within streams, there are a lot of concepts you see over and over again. Cool. Well, thanks for sharing. I think it's worth noting that I think in general, ThoughtBot, is doing more of this because we're we're seeing exactly what you said, which is on lots of things, we're falling back on sort of traditional web development techniques and they're not necessarily the right thing to fall back on. Right. And that there are better tools for those jobs. And then I think when you also layer on the machine learning, which we're working on and doing, and I had... George on a few episodes ago, episode 263, which you can find at giantrobots.fm slash 263 to talk about machine learning. I think particularly when you layer on machine learning, like it's those two where you can say, well, this uses our skills as developers. And it's really important that we build great products and solve these kinds of problems. But our traditional tools are not the same ones that we would normally use. And by tools, I mean programming languages and then also things like databases and pipelines and that kind of thing. Right. I look at it a lot like mobile, maybe, geez, I don't know, five or six years ago, Mm -hmm. where it was increasingly not acceptable to only do web. Like you could consult with somebody else to do the mobile portion of the thing, but not having that as a first class piece that you can think about and identify early on was a liability. 
mm-hmm. even for somebody who did web development. Right. And I think that's happening now with data and machine learning that mm-hmm. more and more the problems involve a lot of data and it's not acceptable to just not know how to handle that. Cool. Well, thanks very much. If people want to follow along or get in touch with you and talk more, how's the best way to do that? Oh, that's a good question. You could find me on Twitter. I am Joe Ferris. Thanks for joining me, Joe. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. You can subscribe to the show and find notes for this episode at giantrobots.fm. If you have questions or comments, email us at hosts at giantrobots.fm. And you can find me on Twitter at cpytel. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Tom Obarski. See you next time. I'm Derek. I'm Sean. And And we we host host The Bike Shed. We talk about the projects. Sometimes we read code. It's very exciting. (laughs) The people. Hi, Aaron. Hi, Vida. Hi, Olivier. Thanks for coming on, Sandy. And everything else that influences our lives as developers. Oh, like speed dating, but for employers. Yes, and I was pretty sure it was going to be bad. And was it? It was bad. So join us every Friday on On The the Bike Bike Shed. Shed. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.